0: So yeah, I'm excited uh, for the show tonight and right when we get started, let me go ahead and give a shout out to the Patreons, KG, Shine, Dr. Olivia, Tony Olivia, Elise Flagg, Diane, Kenneth Dirksen, Dora Petras, Rapatilia, Clarence Lev Fuentes, De Leon, Paul, and Don Schwab OFC, so I appreciate you guys' support on Patreon. And if you haven't joined my Patreon, just jump into the description box. Just click on the link. Have all types of support levels from $1 to $100. So any support you give me goes to keeping all this going, everything we're doing online. So I appreciate your support. Most of our appreciation is your prayers, your likes, your shares, and all of that there. So I think the topic of social justice is a very important topic to have. And, and I, I think the issue is that if we can use political terms, those who would be on the political right or conservatives or, or traditional versus those who would be on, uh, we use left, um, um, liberal, um, mainline uh, seem to have difficulty talking about social justice. And so I have a great guest on for you tonight, an expert. <laughs> in the subject who does it with his feet and he's also he's he's been trained in this academically at a really good university. So it's Lewis DeMonty Jones. And so let's stop delaboring the point right after they second introduction. I'm gonna bring Lewis on and we're gonna get this topic started. This is a live stream, so feel free if you have any questions or comments if you want to opine along the way, please do and we'll make sure we get to your to your thoughts. Anyway, Talking Catholic begins now. Welcome on to Talking Catholic, Lewis. How you doing?
1: Doing so well. I'm so blessed to be here. Thank you so much for having me on today.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm excited about our our conversation. Let me go ahead and introduce you um, to our audience. As I turn my head to read, make sure I get everything here. So Louis Damonte Jones, he is the program and mission alignment coordinator for the Catholic Urban Programs, a social ministry of the diocese of Belleville, which we're both in. And he is a graduate student of the clinical social work at Washington University in St. Louis. And if you don't know about Washington University, um, so there's Harvard, right? And then there's Stanford, which they call the Harvard of the West. We would say Washington University is like the Harvard of the Midwest. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a yeah. really good <laughs> so so he's, so he's academically smart, obviously, um, as well as a fellow at the Gephardt Institute for Civic Community Engagement. And also, he has received the 2020 Cardinal Bernadine Award for New Leadership from the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Also make sure you check out his podcast, it's really good. I think he sometimes has two or three people in there with him, it's called Living Communion. So quite impressive resume,
1: welcome on. I'm so blessed to be here. And yeah, that's (laughs) it. It says a lot, but you know, when you meet the person, you're like, wow, I'm underwhelmed. So (laughs) you be underwhelmed, everyone knows. That's what the idea set you up. So you got to, you definitely
0: got to. And um, so you're married with children, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. And you're born into the faith or
1: cradle uh, convert? So actually, Well, I was, my mom is a practicing Catholic. Um, I saw I was baptized as an infant, Uh, but my mom and my dad, you know, kind of on and off uh, practice, if you will, kind of mixed practice. My mom and dad actually met, Uh, my dad was homeless. Uh, He has HIV AIDS, he was uh, formerly incarcerated and they met actually at a shelter, uh, which then they created their own homeless shelter for, uh, for homeless people with AIDS who were formerly incarcerated. And that's in my godmother. They saw I was born in that shelter that they created uh, called Stand Up Harlem in Manhattan. Um, so I kind of had this kind of spirituality around me uh, since growing up. But my mom practices Catholicism. She goes to mass. But, you know, I was taught really to not buy into all the teaching of the church. And so I kind of had a conversion of myself uh, as I got and older. And So that was kind of a long process. not going to go all through that here, but big process uh, story with that. So.
0: Yeah, so you had like a reversion to the Catholic Church. Yeah,
1: that's a good one. Okay.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, interesting. Okay, yeah, we gotta we gotta dig into that some other time. That's a fascinating background that you're you're born into. Um, people who are doing the work of, um, of ministering to people. So that's that's cool. So always like to say that good conversations begin with. Just good definitions, right? It's kind of hard to move forward unless we agree on some basic things, or at least not not agree, but you know have just just a basic understanding of where each other person is headed. So I, I want to again begin with just defining justice, and then I'll bring you in to talk about social justice in the form of. I'm, I guess I'm going to phrase it, and I'm going to preface it in a, in the form of a question, so become with some good working definitions. So I look at justice, just as just as a cardinal virtue, right? Justice is simply rendering the other person their due, rendering another the person their due. Now, when I think about in the divine sense, I say, well, from man's perspective, what does he what does man do from God? What, what, is, what does justice look like from God? How does God render his due? And I think for that, we just simply look to the nature of God. We can say, Well, God is love. And so when God renders justice, God is giving himself to man because he is love so he's given to himself and so that's that's god rendering justice not that not man is do it in the sense that he's owed it rather that man is do justice from god simply because man was created in the image and likeness of god so god is giving himself to man and i think we see that most perfectly when we look at just the incarnation event or we look at john 3:16 uh uh God so loved the world that he gave himself, in a sense, that God so loved the world that he gave his own begotten son that whoever believes in him has eternal life. So in and it's interesting there also there's there's a paradox in a sense that Christ was God the Father rendering his justice, his due to man, yet man rendered his due to Christ by killing him on a cross, right? And so through that death penalty, Came God rendering His do His love His it came justice from God. So it's this weird it's this weird paradox, but I, I think that's what that 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 the means of salvations the means of salvation came through the cross um, is 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 simply God rendering justice to man again returning man to his original um, um, the matter by which he's created in the image and likeness of God which. You know we fell away from so so when i consider when we consider that um rendering the other their due if, for example if i if i look see a person on the street and i say just as a christian as a baptized christian catholic and i say okay how do i render my due to that person what do they do for me i, I think the question is still the same when i look at it from the divine okay what they're due for me is no different from what God has rendered to me. So I, I owe them Christ. I owe them love. Right. More specifically, I think I owe them the gifts that God has given me. All right. Whatever those are. So for the other, when I'm rendering the other their due, I give, I'm i giving them Christ. I'm giving them the gifts. I'm giving them love. So in when it comes to social justice, now I understand why we preface media before social, before media. Because it's... it's it's media, but it's a different type of thing. It's social, it's communal, right? There's there's a preface. But when it comes to justice, why do we preface the word justice with social?
1: Well, there's so many things there, and I want to say that I so I first I'm not gonna go all the way into this, maybe we can pick this up later. I do have some critiques of what you just said, but critiques that to, that actually play into what I'm gonna talk about later okay. with the social doctrine. But just okay. opening up the question to answer the question, as it as it relates to, to social justice, social justice is not a radical departure from justice as justice. So you said the classical definition, like a Thomistic definition, rendering onto man what man is due. Um, this kind of idea of again, you're you're really trying to it's a cardinal virtue, like you're saying, uh, it's active in nature as a virtue. It's a habitual, it's a habitual act. So it's, it's something that is again done. Um, so mm-hmm. really when you look at social justice, this terminology is relatively recent in the church, um, mm-hmm. but it's not like, you know, it's not, it's it's relatively recent, but it's very consistent. Um, okay. And that's actually very important. So it's not kind of this random, like in one random document or one papacy or kind of sprinkled in the magisterium in a very ad hoc fashion. It's actually very okay. central, it's dealt with, it's talked about, it's fleshed out. Um, so justice, as you know, implied in a social way, Social justice is literally that. You look at that in the, in, the, in the reality of a communal setting, particularly looking at economic issues um, and broader social issues, particularly oriented towards the public authority and the common good. If you want to actually detail now, and because we're not gonna do strictly reading off like the catechism, there is a <laughs> catechism about social justice. It literally has its own section in the catechism. That's part three, chapter two, article three. But then there's also some other sprinklings of the term social justice particularly related to economics. And you can also find in the compendium of the social doctrine of the church, a detailed analysis of social justice. But I'll say this, the term social justice should not mix people up. So if you believe in justice as justice, you believe in social justice. There's no, di- there's no dichotomy and there's no contradiction. And I think that's really critical when you're having the conversation, because if you define them in juxtaposition to each other, you will find a a problem, right? Because you're creating a dichotomy between what's justice and then what's a socialized justice. And I use the term socialized, not to refer to socialism, but just as in the the magisterium, the term socialized is used to describe kind of a communal uh, reality, something that's brought out into the communal, just like you said, into the communal space. Um, I will say this, so two things in terms of why has it come out at this time in history? When you look at social justice, I think social justice really starts to take root Um, In the late 1800s, particularly looking at and there was the term social justice was thrown around by other philosophers and different different people. But I think you really start seeing the magisterium take up the idea of social justice in its magisterium in the response that is Catholic social doctrine. Um, Mm -hmm. And so looking at the late 1800s, what what is there that makes it something significant? Well, you have industrialization and you have Marxist ideology. So you have these two very intense. You have radical industrialization, which is radicalizing fair capitalism and then you have uh marxism which are very real threat i mean they like they're very like they're 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 causing a lot of problems. so why is why was uh, radical capitalism a threat radical capitalism was a threat because it was it was taking the human person and commodifying the human person especially the value of human labor especially mm-hmm. value so it's taking human labor and making it like a cog in a machine to accrue wealth um particularly to those who had the means of production so that's why that was looked at as a problem from the magisterium so social justice was talked about as an economic issue connected to what human people will do based on their nature as a human person and that their work has value. And St. John Paul II goes deep into this in Laborium Exercens* document on the dignity of work, but it's also gone into as, late, as early as the late 1800s um, talking about how this value has become, you've taken human work, which is this participation in the creative work of God, and you've made it now, this commodity completely divorced from like human, human, like human beings, from like kind of like the subjective value of human life, you kind of totally divorce these things in radical capitalism. And Marxism, which was a collectivist ideology, that was kind of like on the other side, it was a reaction against, uh, in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Uh, mm-hmm. If you look at Marx, he was really reacting towards like the situation in Britain and kind of like the wild, you know, kind of the Charles Dickens esque like, you know, proletariat type, you know, kids running around with like dirt on their face, like type wild stuff. know, yeah, like on. Oliver. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, that's a, <laughs> that's what he was reacting to and saying, this is totally destroying humankind. And so we need to eliminate all of this. And we need to just have, you know, this kind of perfect utopian society where all of human labor is actually, you know, completely equal. And everyone, every human person is getting there, is is, is having their, all their needs met. And it's like this perfect society. That's kind of what the reaction against, uh, against, and that's kind of what the church is is challenging on both sides and saying we need social justice in this world, and it's none of these, none of these situations. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But but how's how's it how's it played out? And I guess we could just stick to U- United States. So you know, I'm not sure s- these activities look different in, in other countries. But yes, yeah, you know. in, in the United States, um, it it seems to be, right? And so, you know, it could be a logical error here, but from some people's perspective, it it seems to be that when we're, that the people who are concerned, or we look at in some churches that have social justice programs, they would call them social justice programs. Why is it that you, you, why, why do you think that, or do you think, or why does it appear that these activities, seem to be so closely aligned with sometimes the activities uh, or the media interests of, we could say, the Democrats. For example, I didn't hear a whole lot about immigration until we started hearing it become this huge political issue, right? Um, And we can go down the list of just a couple of things, but do you think is there is this there this trend sometime in Catholic churches to align our social justice activities with political trends, and so I yeah I'll just leave it there.
1: Yes, I mean for sure. I mean that's <laughs> that's that's undisputable. There's definitely an ideological tracking of the use of terms, um, and I would say, but I w- I would I would challenge that though. I'll say that that exists, but that's actually uh, wrong. That's actually divisive. It's actually problematic. Uh, it's not gospel centered uh, to have. Because when you look at the magisterium and what is talked about in terms of the works of charity and justice, Mm -hmm. and all of like, I mean, when you go back to, I mean, it's just it's been down the line. Every all the people, if you look at in history, especially even the United States, even take past hundred fifty years, you look at the individuals who are working in charitable works or justice oriented works, and if you if and they become public figures, they're almost always labeled as progressive, like progressive or like that's just something that it's like a labeling. Um, sure. type of thing that happens. But the church that's doesn't cool. have this type of uh, dichotomous view of the world where it's like left, right, progressive. Mm-hmm. Conservative. Like that's not That doesn't exist in the theological tradition uh, as the magisterium. Now it exists in individual theologians mm-hmm. or people, whatever. But the magisterium does not have that type of, uh, it doesn't track like that. Um, why is that important? Ch- the works of charity and justice should be free of ideological uh, taint of any kind. Uh, that's actually especially important for charitable works. Very important for charitable works. It's actually in the if you read uh, Benedict the Sixteenth document, uh, Caritas and Veritate. and he also talks about this in Deus Caritas Est. In the second half, he talks about charitable works and like how this is an integral part of the church. Like this is a part of the church's nature is to do charity, charitable works. He takes it all the way back to the early church fathers. It's at the essence of the church, and he he actually quotes um, uh, what's his name, Uh, uh, Julian the Apostate, who was a a person from the early church. Centuries who actually left Christianity. He actually tried to revive paganism. Uh, this was like in the fifth century or so, fifth or sixth century. And one of the things that he that the Julian the apostate said is he was like, the one thing that he that he envied the Christians for was their charitable activity. So Benedict the 16th quotes that and says, This has been a part of the church since the very beginning. This is the essence of the church. So the church is non-ideological in nature. Now, again, there can be people from the church. Who are ideological, but the church is the body of Christ, so the works of charity and justice are not called to be ideological, they shouldn't track on any political ideology at all. They should, there should, there should be no clean like in no situation should there be a clean political ideology that's on the that that represents the church's doctrine, um, in the contemporary frame, right? Mm-hmm. So, we would say that when people say that the works of justice are progressive, meaning on the left, right, I would say that that's taking the church's magisterium and teaching and orthopraxy or orthodox practice and then like again creating a dichotomy that doesn't actually exist within the church's mind you know so i think that those folks who have that are not thinking in the church church's mind i would say those persons are not are not you know at the heart of the magisterium because the, the heart of the magisterium it's going to have us speak truth to all political authorities um so r- you're right i just think people tend who on the critical left or progressive tend to navigate towards those And I think then it becomes like these people now kind of create an atmosphere that seems to be uh, somewhat of a certain political ideology. This happens in Catholic charities. This happens in Catholic relief services. This happens in, you know, if you go on like policy teams for domestic policy for the USCCB or for other. It seems a certain way, although there's nothing that anyone may be doing that's actually for a particular political group Mm -hmm. because of certain ways that people are Mm -hmm. just as people, which they have the freedom to have a certain political ideology. But the works themselves should not be ideologically oriented, if that makes sense. Does that make yeah,
0: sense? I, I get that, yeah, and, and, I, and, I, and I appreciate the word should, um, definitely. But why is it then that social justice committees in the church or Catholic charities, as you say, how come it seems to be dominated by people who would treat social justice in, in this way as, as some sort of gamemanship
1: I would say, well, first of all, I want to say in defense of all these individuals that I know that, you know, people have the right to have their own political ideology there as a, as a citizen of the United States, you have the right to have your own political ideology. You should, even in the church's mind, the church has no political ideology or philosophical mandate um it's definitely something that sociopolitically you should go into that and live that so i think you just have people who do that and they tend to be attracted towards these types of ministry i mean these types of things and there is like you like i believe all of us believe there's room in the church for different political opinions as long Mm -hmm. as those are orthodox in nature which there is definitely room for that there is definitely you can definitely be somebody who identifies as progressive and you can definitely be someone who identifies as conservative and you can still be orthodox. And you can still actually apply your theology in a political way in different ways and still be orthodox in that. Why I say that? We have to say that because in, look at the world, look at all the different regimes, political regimes, ideologies, political parties. It's very social. It's, it's, it's our own political context. And so what I challenge us as Americans to do is not to read American politics onto people's actions all the time. So why, why do I say that? Mm-hmm if someone if someone is serving uh doing a homeless shelter and that person happens to personally vote for the democratic party um and they may again you know or have their own political ideology right or whatever but they believe all the teachings of the church and they proclaim all the teachings of the church but they're doing this action you know we have to look at the action itself instead of reading yeah. into it right their own political ideology and I think that's what happens, right? People look at, for, and this happens to us, right? And somebody who's on the board of Catholic Charities uh, from, for a diocese who works in Catholic urban programs. I mean, people who tend to be in social service tend to be more progressive, but that doesn't mean in any way that that means that, they're, that you know it's people who don't want to support the church's teaching. Now, again, just like you can have some conservatives who don't support all the church's teaching. So can you have some people who are on the other side who don't support all the church's teaching. And so it's important to di- differentiate between having a certain political ideology and not agreeing with church teaching, Those are two different things, and it's important, I think, to differentiate.
0: It it sounds like, what I'm hearing from you, it it seems like social justice committees or activities would be healthier if more people from different sides were were involved in the conversation. But But I think it's hard for, I think, some people to jump on board when they hear False equivocating, right? You know, a lot of people, traditional Catholics, would have a big problem with people throwing out the whole seamless garment thing, right? Because they would view pro or abortion, as is commonly called, as just a deep primitive issue. Like we can't help the, a, the guy on in prison or the guy at a traffic stop or the, or the person at the border if they're not born. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just so basic. We have to defend life in a womb with all our passion or energy. Also, with all of our passion and energy, we 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 defend and help the people who are at different stages of human development. But the falsely equivocating, Lewis, it's just it's just tough. I mean, the whole seamless garment thing. I mean, what do you what do you think about that?
1: I definitely understand this critique. I think this critique is valid in many ways. um, Because why do I say that? Um, I think that for people who do care about a ton of issues, right, like the death penalty. They care about a ton of issues like immigration. Um, they may, you know, and then, you know, they may say, we should look at all issues as the same, right? We should have a kind of, we should, like you said, the seamless garment approach, meaning and interpreted in the sense to say that everything has the exact same static importance and value. Um, first of all, I want to I want to question if that's actually the original seamless garment approach, but now I think that's how it's used often. But I will say that that is not Catholic teaching. Um, And why? How can I say that? Well, you can go to Archbishop Jose Gomez, who dealt with this issue recently in the USCCB meetings, talking about how, you know, the the number one issue, the preeminent issue is protection of unborn life. Why all the life issues are preeminent. That includes uh, issues related to even really contraception. Some other issues are considered life issues. And and that's because they touch the very essence, again, of, of human beings, right? Like you're saying, the whole reason why people are trying to uh, support human life at all stages is because human life is so valuable and human dignity is at the supreme You know is, is again the image and likeness of God so It's so you would say that things that directly attack human life are the worst are the worst things right because right. um, And that, that includes that includes of course the the taking of unborn life for any reason um So, yeah, I, I mean I will say that there's some people who definitely do not Uphold that right or or at least in their language seem to not um Seem to place that as being equal to some other issues that are not necessarily equal in terms of moral theology. But I will say this: for those Catholics, if 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 there are some Catholics who are conservative-minded, and they may say, "Well, I don't like when people are saying that," rather than step in and kind of say, "Well, I can't be around these people because these Catholics you will know, have this approach and they have this blanket way of viewing problems," give it as a, that's a space where you can like bring again evangelization through your witness and through your charitable actions. Um, like you're saying, I think some people may say like, okay, well, I don't even want to step into the space because people will attack me because they'll say I'm conservative or let's check my Facebook and like make comments on my Facebook and say all these, all this stuff about me, etc. Okay. Well, you know, if you're witnessing to the gospel and that's the truth and you can back that up and that's actually true, then that's your call to me, maybe, maybe called to witness. Maybe you, maybe you are somebody who's deeply pro-life. Your whole mission is pro-life. My wife, she doesn't, she has not had any experience working at homeless shelter or anything like that. And she's been pro-life ministry like since she was a kid, right? So like that's her thing, right? I don't, we, we, we can we can meet on all the things, right? Including that. So if yeah. people are called to different particular ministries and so yeah. I would say that if you're somebody who's deeply pro-life and feel called to homeless ministry, feel called to Catholic charities, step into that space, right? Be honest about your feelings and then try to have those conversations with fellow Catholics. I would say sometimes in some of these ministries, not talking about parish ministries, but things like Catholic charities, um, my own social uh, program uh, ministry, um, a lot of times we employ people who are not Catholic also, right? Um, so at the base level, that may be another reason why people may think that Catholic cha- the leaderships are Catholic, right, of all these agencies and stuff, but in the, on the ground, those people who are doing some of those things may not be Catholic also. So mm-hmm. I think that's a grave. I think we should have a lot more people of faith in these agencies in order for them to have and maintain their character. And so this actually may be a calling for people who feel you know, deeply about pro-life issues, there's a lot of pro life. You can continue to be an advocate for for unborn life, and also do other things and step into spaces with people who you may not agree with ideologically all the time. And then it, it can be a space for a con- conversion, for a dialogue, uh, for conversation. So I think I would challenge those folks to step out of their comfort zone, um, and to welcome and to understand that these ministries are for you. These Catholic charities ministries are for you. You they are a part of the church in Archdiocese of Saint Louis. They're a part of the church. They're the bishop is the head of the ministry. Same thing in my other ministry. So they are literally. Integrate integrated parts of the church. So please, this is for you. On our board, we have conservatives. We have people who literally work for the Republican Party, and then we have people who are very progressive on the same board, right? We yeah. have people from Black Catholic parishes. We have people from Latin mass parishes on our board, right? This is how it should be, right? It should be like that.
0: Yeah. And I, I remember, I mean, you make a great, great point about entering into those spaces. I remember um, when I was, I think there was a world meeting of families back in maybe 2016 around the, the Modesto area um, and went to this meeting huge meeting you know Colonel Turkson was there a lot of well, people there and um, I think I was the only person there who voted for Trump right and so, at, 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 and, and so but I remember when I was speaking with this lady it was one of our small groups and she was talking about one of her relatives had recently been arrested and deported. And another person was talking about climate change, which, again, if you're like a conservative, that, that just triggers. Like, yeah, yeah, I mean, we know that the climate is changing, but, you know, they were saying global warming. Yeah, we know that the climate is changing. But, you know, this whole the political agenda, the, the legislation, legislating. There's a legislative aspect of of, of of global warming, whatever, and so it's like it just, and so we were trying to have this conversation about trying to figure out how to use words to not trigger each other, right? Because I have a bunch of trigger words, but <laughs> but you, well, when we were talking about immigration, and I uh, and the lady was talking about her relative being deported, you know, and I I, I responded when she and she responded back that she appreciated that I was there and that I heard her. And so, and I know Catholic charities and committees at the church are supposed to be these, (laughs) these these sessions to help us dialogue with one another, but I like what you're saying that maybe through the activity of doing the work, maybe we can find some common ground there, right?
1: Yeah, and I'll say this about immigration, Um, just to what, just to dive into it. You mentioned immigration multiple times, so I wanna talk about this. Uh, the reality on the ground is that the Catholic church is the number one uh, person, the number one group of aiding immigrants, probably in this in this country by far. Um, and so this is one of those interesting things where kind of like what you were saying, you, you alluded to earlier, how you know immigration wasn't really a big conversation. It's become a recent conversation. It's been politicized. Um, and I, I would challenge because just like there's room for a uh, for conversion of heart for some progressive uh, Catholics, for sure, uh, some who don't hold all churches. I think also those who identify as conservative may need conversion apart on some other issues as well. And I wanna make a differentiating factor between the political conversation and the theology of the church, uh, mm-hmm. especially when, when, you, when you're talking about moral theology. Why do I say that? Because care for creation, as the USCCB calls that theme of social doctrine, or you can call it, you know, again, there's different definitions. There's between three to three to seven. somehow even as much as nine different core tens of Catholic social doctrine. But I would say that if you're looking at the broad stroke, let's use the USCCB the the seventh theme of care for creation. This is something that's non negotiable. It's non negotiable that people care for creation. You can disagree, right? This is there's valid room for disagreement about what does it mean to care for creation. Right. But it's not valid to say we don't we don't have a responsibility towards creation. Now, right. and this is where this is where progressive and conservative Catholics often have this disagreement, right, about the difference between leaping from the moral theology to a direct policy, right? This is why I try to differentiate, right? We should have the conversation on the on the moral theology as Catholics, and then we should debate amongst ourselves about the policy. And as it relates to the policy, we can disagree and not be heretics, right? <laughs> like this is the more important part um, as it relates to immigration. It is definitely the church's teaching a couple of things. One, that people have the right to migrate based on natural law. You can also read um, the newest updated kind of theology on this uh, from Pope Francis in his encyclical Fratelli Tutti. Um, what does this mean? So he takes the theme of the universal destination of all goods, and he looks at that in the, from Thomas Aquinas and looks at that in the in the context of a globalized society. Mm-hmm. And actually, if he goes very far on the, in the document, in terms of expanding the theology of universal destination of all goods. But it's also very consistent with the theology, which is why the idea of, so people would say, why are Catholics always supporting illegal immigrants? Why are Catholics always the ones talking about illegal immigration? Okay, well, Catholics, if you read the documents, Catholics don't necessarily support people breaking the law. What people say is that we should support people who have crossed as migrants because of some complex reasons. One, that people... have crossed as strangers in our midst we always are called to support the stranger deep in the theology of the church of course everyone knows that but also because people do have the right under extreme circumstances to migrate um that's a right in in human nature it's not based on it's not based on any political boundaries right that's a right for someone to seek safety now countries have the right to defend their borders one and they have the right to legislate their borders meaning they can defend their borders so for example uh Could a a Catholic could either support or not support the border wall, and that's not that's not not caring for immigrants, right? Necessarily, so those are not contradictory, right? Um, But I will say that people on the conservative side have to realize that the party, the Republican Party, has moved on this issue, has moved on this issue significantly. Go back to George Bush, George W. Bush was for a comprehensive immigration solution. He was for citizenship a pathway of citizenship he still kind of is <laughs> and he was president twice from the republican party and was looked at as extremely social conservative extreme he was looked at as like the most extreme social conservative. so like you have to see that the party has changed and this is why i say catholics have to be converted on all sides you cannot let the polit- political nature of the of america change your theology you need to go to the, the theology first and then you need to go back to your political party you need to change that conversion of heart now again you can disagree on policy, but we have to agree on the fundamentals.
0: Yeah. And I think I think Zion Kelly brought an aspect of that earlier. I, is that, I mean, you, you bring up the, you know, Republicans and Democrats, how they'll change their opinion just to get some of votes. Right. Just, <laughs> you know, it just it, it doesn't, you know. But one thing that's that's that that's driving how people approach issues is also, you know, the media. Not because they have any great interest, but you know, some things make money. There may be some ideology there, but you know, so you have these factors that that's driving how people think. I, and I think I think that's 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 a great point, you know, about 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 George Bush, at least the lip
1: service he gave. He was trying though. If you, he was hard, he was trying hard, and he failed. <laughs> yeah, and actually, it was because it bipartisan failure. You know, I mean, yeah. because it was both sides actually oppose that. That's what I'm saying. You can't like the media, and like like the your guest said. The media and social media are driving people into political polarization. That's dangerous for people's salvation, and not just in not just in the like in the short term, but in the long term, because it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse, right? So we now have a chance to step back and say, "Look, I may have to step back from this media, right? I may have to turn off Fox, right? I may have to turn off CNN and MSNBC. I may have to step back uh, from this if I think it's start it's starting to warp my vision, right? Oh, especially my fellow brothers and brothers and sisters who are Catholics, um." But even also my brothers and sisters in American citizenship, or yeah. you know, in residency, right? You have it's it's about we have to make sure that we don't allow the media and in these political people who are driven by money and greed to again cut us off uh, from our humanity, which I think yeah. is what's truly happening.
0: But how, how would you flesh that out, though? Because so the church he, they, they don't have any. You know, the, the church believes in. Well, I wouldn't say. Well, I wouldn't say believes, but the church doesn't have any teachings against. Um, countries have a right to their borders, right? Yeah, and yeah. there can be some immigration laws that are unjust, right? But um, we don't have to have a conversation about what laws just or unjust. But let's just say countries have a right to protect their borders. They have a right yeah. to craft immigration law. Yeah, but also people have a right to migrate. Right, um, uh, because of whatever issues, because the the first right that everyone has is a right to life. That that's the first right that everyone has is a right to life. So, if to pursue your right to life, to defend that right to life, you have a right to migrate. Okay, church teaching, countries have a right to protect their borders, and they, uh, the right to sovereignty. So, how do you flesh those two things out?
1: Yes, good, great question. Well, this is where catholics can disagree right but they have to keep those principles in mind so this is this is the key problem right is when catholics dismiss parts of the theology right and they don't try to keep both in mind so some may say we have the right to our sovereign borders period <laughs> so like that means that if you cross this we are going to shoot you <laughs> because you have crossed or broke our laws and they would make that justification based on the idea which is true that you have the right to protect your borders okay well we would say, you know, this is, and again, I'm not trying to be political in in the sense of a partisan nature, because I, I, there's great Catholics I know who voted for Trump, and there's great Catholics I know who voted for Joe Biden, right? And I'll say that honestly, there are people who believe in the teaching of the church who did both. I'm not going to argue right now if you can't do this or can't do. That, I'm not going to argue. I'm just saying I know Catholics who have done both and voted for neither. And but I want to talk about that. I just just let you know, you're going to light up the com box with that. I but go know. ahead. I, I appreciate all y'all. I love all y'all still, <laughs> even if y'all. But I'll say this: um, uh, I'll say this. That policy of family separation was one of the policies that brought this to life. Um, you even had people on the right really speak out against this policy um, as being antithetical to conservatism, especially antithetical to family uh, values. And this was where it went too far, right? Um, where you start to do something. That starts to, again. It's it's about natural law. When, you, when something strikes you so viscerally, that typically says something about your conscience. And that's that's typically something connected to the natural unless you have a deformed conscience. And as it relates to the family separation, to take a child who's like an infant child, I mean, infant children, and then put them in a place where they're not really they're being for by random strangers. And then you send their family back and you don't even know how to, how to bring them back. You just don't even know. You but wasn't
0: what, what what the, the issue the fact that they couldn't necessarily determine who, <laughs> whether that, that that adult was the actual the child's parent? So in that case, the the child has a right to their parents, right? But. The, the state has also a duty to make sure that, that the, the person they're with isn't some sort of molester, some sort of dangerous person. So yeah. I think in that case, you have to do your due diligence to separate and see flesh that whole thing out. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that I think that you can have policy that that does that in a nuanced way that definitely vets people, you know, because we know that um, people are paid to take children across the border. That's a fact. I mean, it's not a secret. Everyone knows this. Um, so there is, that. that's a real live question, but that's not, the policy was not, the policy was a deterrent policy, right? It was so that people do not send anyone across the border because they knew that people were doing this. Um, so this is where, this is where I think we have to say, look, yes, we have the right to defend our borders. Um, that can mean increased border security. That can mean even deportation, right? Um, and figuring out how to deport people in a, in a humane fashion, but you have certain policies that go too far and you have certain policies that don't look at people's human rights. And I think also, and by human rights, I don't mean their civil rights. Right? I'm talking about their natural law yeah. rights. Yeah. And this is critical for Catholics um, to understand that the natural law is different than the law of the United States of America. And that's always from time immemorial. That's what Christ is calling us to challenge. Like If you go back, to even Martin Luther King Jr., who is obviously not Catholic, but when he made his eloquent speech about how our God given, like the natural law calls us to challenge unjust laws, right? That's something a Catholic could have said. In fact, that's things Catholics have said. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something we always have to remember. We cannot bow towards a political ideology at the moment, a political movement, a partisan uh, uh, thing. We have to look at the human person at all places in all stages. Even if this means, again, um having to again craft and this is what the church has always called for the church has not called for uh open borders policy a lot of people make it seem like the church said that that's not the church never said that the church has always said we we call for comprehensive immigration reform and that does not mean open borders for everyone that means we need to figure out a way to protect people's human dignity and also protect our borders and you'll find that in every document and i want and so i think when people talk about the usccb is only supporting illegal you need to look at what they have actually said. You need to look at what how this was a bipartisan thing until about ten years ago, right? <laughs> so, like mm-hmm. recognizing how things yeah. change, right?
0: Yeah, but Lewis, do you do you, would you would you admit though that I mean, so so you and I agree that countries have a, some sort of to a degree just the right a sovereignty, right? They can have their borders and, and things like that. Some immigration laws, we can say, let's just let's just say immigration laws ha, are just. Let's say there are some just immigration laws. So why would you have some Catholic agencies going across the border coaching people to, when they get to the border, say they're a, they're seeking asylum? I mean, it they seems like those people are like intentionally um, thumbing their finger, thumbing their nose at just immigration laws, just to play this ship of getting people into the country. I want you to answer that one, and also um, whether is it is it true that some there's that, or some organizations in the Catholic Church profit by there being more um, people who come into this country illegally.
1: I can't. I will. Well, so I'll speak to the first one first. So I can't speak to any individual case because I'm not in the border right. I'm not across the border, so I can't speak to that policy particularly. But I can say that. It's people have the right to seek asylum. So that's a human right. And it's also a, a, a civil right, actually, also. So there's no problem with that from that point of view. Now, obviously, you never want to encourage people to say something that's not true. Um, so if it's untrue, then that's problematic because you shouldn't ever tell anybody to say anything untrue. But if it's true, then telling people what to say. If somebody is coming for, and fleeing from a, a place of deep violence or deep, even deep economic, during in certain economic insecurity conditions from an even civil law perspective, if that's the case or political persecution, If that's the case and they just don't know how to present their case, then they need someone to help them who's able to to present who knows the system. That's why we have lawyers in general, because they need people who know the system to guide you through. That doesn't mean that they have to create a whole new false case for you. That just means they have to tell you how to advocate and teach you how to advocate or advocate on your behalf. That's actually critical. That's I mean, in common law, you need advocates. That's a critical thing. So on that point, lying, wrong, advocacy, good. All right, so (laughs) moving away. So if they're actually helping people to really have their case presenting the best way, then that's fine. Uh lying is bad. All right. Uh two, are people Im- are people profiting from immigration? Okay. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, is this this
0: is this is this is something that you I I hear a lot. I don't know if you you, you hear it much, but I hear it a lot that the reason why the United States bishops they're they're for immigration is cause there is a boatload of money that they get. I mean is that is that true or not? Are they is the is the is the church profiting off of um, people come across the border illegally
1: is the church profiting I would say no I mean I, I couldn't see any way that that would that those two things would equate it's like it's not like when somebody crosses the border the USCCB gets a check like that the two things <laughs> don't add up so I don't know why somebody would say that I think what they may be referring to is that the United States government gives grants yeah yeah, to, yeah they give grants to organizations like especially Catholic charities maybe the ones on the border some of them run by nuns to help to take care of people who are migrants. Now, anyone who's ever run a social service agency or I deal with grants, I have I oversee grants and I've also given out grants. So is are people profiting from grants? No, because you can't profit from grants. Grants literally you have to write long, detailed, bureaucratic reports for all the money that you get. Nobody's profiting from that. It's very tedious and it's very monotonous. Trust okay, let me
0: let me let me let me change the word. <laughs> let me change the word profit then to has has there been an economy created with um, jobs and and um, salaries and is there a whole economy created by in the Catholic Church due to due to people coming across the border illegally
1: I would definitely say that there's definitely I mean I'll say this there are definitely people whose job is to take care of people who have crossed the border right whether legally or illegally they don't sometimes and so I and I can't again I'm, I want to be very honest I have not worked on the border so I can't speak to what agencies are doing on the border. Um, none of the agencies I work for are even close to the border. So I don't <laughs> have to. So mm-hmm. it, it's a different whole different realm. But I will say that definitely people there, the church takes care of these people. Many people People need to realize as Catholics, these people coming over are mostly Catholics. They're mostly almost all of them are baptized, at least. And many of them are practicing Catholics. So, yes, the church is going to take care of the body of Christ. Yes. Um, are some of those jobs with salaries? Yes. Are they multi-million-dollar positions? No. Are they Are they They are only for the sole reason of making money from these grants. No. These grants often are passed on a bipartisan basis as well. And they also, as Catholics, we should actually support this happening because we rather have the church doing this work than a bureaucratic agency doing this work. So what blows my mind is like, why are, Why would Catholics be upset that other Catholics are taking care of Catholics? Right, rather than having a social service, public social service, service agency
0: do this, I would say that. I would, I would say that points to Robert Lucas. He raised this point. I want you to respond to, but before I, but before I get to Robert's question, I just want to ask you a funny question: okay. Who's been who's been closer to the border, you or Kamala Harris?
1: No, <laughs> I'm <no>. just kidding. <laughs> no comment on that.
0: Uh, actually, no. Kamala
1: Harris went to a place near the border recently. So.
0: Come on. So, Robert Robert Lucas, he wants to ask you. The problem with Lewis' perspective is that this country will be destroyed with continued and mass immigration. You can't eat the sea crop except
1: a harvest. I expect the harvest. Interesting, interesting analogy there. Um, I'll say this in response to Robert Lucas's point. Um, I would ask him to say, "What does he mean by it's going to be destroyed by in mass immigration?" I'll I'll, I'll say this. You know, to to, stand, to touch on the point of in mass immigration, everyone realizes it's a problem. When you have even Joe Biden has said, you know, don't come right after people started coming. He said, don't come. So everyone from all political parties recognizes that immigration, ha- as it's been happening, is problematic. It's problematic from a humanitarian standpoint. There's so much violence. There's so much, you know, people are being trafficked. It's it's true. And there's, it's just dangerous to walk, you know, hundreds or thousands of miles and all that stuff that's happening as regards to that. And then people come to the border and yes, it's not legal to just cross the border. So you're gonna come with problems there. Uh, I actually have been to the border, not for my job, but I've crossed the border on a Greyhound bus. And as I was crossing it to go into Mexico, I was actually, I would live with a monk for a month. I'm not gonna talk about that now. But as I was crossing the border, um, you see people who are literally being taken back across the border who are soaking wet, right? And they're like, so they're experiencing like to do that is a is a very a very intense thing to do. Um, so nobody believes that that's like the best thing. But will it does it destroy the country to have more immigration? I don't agree with that. But if you talk about illegal immigration as being a problem because of the dangers and because of just some of those things, yes. But I think there's a narrative that I don't agree with that if we have more immigration, it'll destroy the essence of America. It'll destroy what America means. It'll change our values. I don't agree with that, and I don't like. I don't like that language from Catholics because I think that it, it's a political narrative. It doesn't speak to what our tradition says about Im- how immigration actually does help um, people. And the reason being that in C- Christ calls us all to one family. This is actually if you go into the social, not even the social doctrine, you just go into the theology of the church and the mystical body of Christ. One of the missions of Christ and in the, in the sending of the Holy Spirit was to unify all people into one family, the body of Christ, and to unify in him. And like the United States itself, which is a multicultural fabric of many people from different backgrounds, so in, a, in some ways, we image this dream, right, of a of where people can live together in a harmonious, back, a harmonious situation and not be of the same ethnic background, just like the church globally images this by having people from different ethnic backgrounds who worship in the same mass, the same God in the Eucharist, um, and have the same theology centered on the divine worship of God. And so... These things like as, as we have, we have to be careful that we don't fall into the political language um, of you know xenophobia or demonization of immigrants. we can disagree with the policies but we have to recognize the people they still have dignity and worth yeah
0: I mean I, 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 I love legal immigration I mean I, I do I think it is it's, it's good right it's, it's a good for everyone in, involved. I mean we we live in the same area. I was just over at um, Sonic the other day in O'Fallon. They had to close at like six o'clock because they didn't have any one to work. Right, so there's in this area, you know, there's no one. We have all these jobs and no one to fill them. Everywhere you and I go, there's a hell one sign. So, um, and so these definitely are. are I think you know, two things can help our economy: people getting back to work, and I think there's there's jobs that people can immigrate and they can have a better life here. Right, I think there's there, there there's. I hate illegal immigration in the sense because I, I used to work at. I don't know I hate that people are in that situation. I would say because when I was in Columbus, Ohio, I used to work for an agency called Ohio Stones. and one of my clients was a guy, really good guy, been in this country illegally for a lot of years. He came in through Arizona, and this man lives in the shadows. He can't get a driver's license. He can't get he well, he has a car. But he can't get insurance. He lost custody of his kids. Can't get his kids back. It's a horrible right. life in a yeah. lot of sense to live in these shadows. It's dangerous. It, it really is. So I, I hate that people have to to live in, a, in that situation. But I think that and Diane, Diane Kelly or one someone here made a question. Oh, yeah, here, because this, this is one of my comments as well. Why, why can't Catholic charities or other organizations? Why can't they go into Honduras and, and build schools and do things there to help people stay in their own country? rather than have to take that like you said this dangerous trek why not help people where they are
1: i'll say this what we do we are the catholic church is obviously the most charitable organization on the face of the planet by way far by huge leaps and bounds um so they are doing that in fact honduras is a mostly catholic country so most of the people there are catholics doing that same anyone most of the people who are doing that work are catholics doing that work so now, church- we
0: know we know honduras is a corrupt country right um, so and so there's issues there, right? But, but what can we do to help people stay in their country rather than this, you know, a term, um, what's a good term? Um, closing the gates after the horses left, another euphemism, I don't, hustling backwards. I just, like, we're doing all this stuff at the border, all this money, all this energy, all this effort. Why can't we spend that there in those countries where they're at?
1: Yeah, well, that's the church actually advocates for that um, in the in its, uh, there's, a, there's a whole document. The church has released on migration. And that's actually one of the things that it talks about is because it's, it's it's a symptom of the disease. Right. That a country is experiencing that people want to leave your own country of your own origin. It obviously means that there's a problem there. Right. That's why you're leaving there. So the church definitely advocates for that as being actually getting to the root of the issue. The question then becomes, again, a foreign from the United States perspective, it's a foreign policy issue of, you know, for example, you know, that same person, I'm not not reading anything into their values, but one of the things that people critique is they critique foreign aid, right? Um, And they critique giving foreign aid to countries, um, you know, because they feel like they should spend it on Americans, right? And so foreign Mm -hmm. aid is one of the ways that people actually deal with some of these problems in certain countries, especially from a humanitarian lens. So that's why the church does advocate for humanitarian aid for these countries. I also believe that this is in keeping with our nature as the United States. What we give actually in foreign aid is an extremely small part of our federal budget. I invite everyone to go see that, to see that I'm not making it up. If you really look at the budget, you're like shocked at how small it is. Cause you think about how much people talk about it, you think this must be like 10% of the budget. <laughs> it's not even close to that, right? So like it's a very small amount. And so, yes, I agree. We could spend a lot. We could save a lot of time thinking of actually innovative policy solutions to dealing with these international issues. This is our own hemisphere, right? People are coming from our own hemisphere, particularly Central America, and we should be doing better, right? We should be doing better as a country, uh, as a as a as a region to deal with these root causes of these problems. But don't
0: you you think the United States here would be at odds with the Catholic Church? Because I don't know if my listeners are going to like me hear like me say this, but the United States is like it is it's the country that it is because i think it does a really good job keeping the poor poor it helps keep a lot of poor countries poor through our foreign policies and, and things like that we don't really as a country i don't think we want other wealthy countries in this region because i think you've been there was an ideology at place with capitalism that you, you can keep the poor poor keep yourself rich i don't understand it but i think here that the catholic church may be at odds with, the United States might be at odds with the Catholic Church because the United States, are they really interested in building a competitor up or creating a competitor?
1: Well, I think this goes to the a very core disagreement with the church's view of economics, which is not... Uh, the church believes in competition. The church believes in the free market. That's Without a doubt, you can read St. John Paul II's discussion on the free market. He talks about this explicitly and says the church does support a free market, but the church does not support a unregulated market um, cetera. So where I say that, the church supports competition, including in the international sphere. So that's actually the church does not disagree with that. Um, I, I'll say that, but the church has a view of economics and social life that's based not on, co- on, co- on uh, competitiveness, uh, this, but on cooperation. And I think any, like a wise country would recognize that to have, it's almost like if you had, like uh, you have a really nice neighborhood, right? And then right next to it, you have a really dangerous neighborhood. Okay, it benefits you to make that neighborhood a safe neighborhood. I think that, so. That directly <laughs> benefits you. Um, if you just have yeah. a truly self-interest mindset, it will yeah. benefit you to make sure that this is the safest place yeah. next to you. You want your neighborhood yeah. to be safe and you want that to be the next safest place right, right next to you. Like, so this is how people should think, right? Yeah. You know, just like prevention saves people from having to look for the cure, right? And this right. is what people could be doing. Again, this these are policy questions. Are people thinking like this or are people thinking from a self-interested mind- mentality that is blind to that reality which is even still self-interested in nature and i think this is where we have to question ourselves and see how has how has political language shaped the way we even think about these problems it's, yeah. it's done a lot of damage
0: yeah yeah and um dean Nyes brought a point i, I want to guess we spent a lot of time talking about immigration. I didn't know know I'm about, about not immigration, right? I thought we might get to critical race theory or something. But yeah, we, I, we, just, I actually
1: don't even <laughs> talk that much about immigration.
0: <laughs> but um, where's the. Uh, he says, um, I guess this goes back to the point of a, asylum. If most people are coming here, most, I don't know, we, we could argue most, right? But let's just say, let's say we agree on this. Aren't most Latinos coming for material reasons, not uh, for actual not the church. Maybe you want to say, maybe not asylum.
1: Yeah. I'm going to say this. So first of all, I want to move off immigration, (laughs) but I will say, uh, I will say that most people are, I think are coming for work. I mean, most of the, in terms of what I've heard, um, it's people are coming for work and people should support. These are a lot of times and it's not everyone just like, you know, you can't make broad strokes, but a lot of people are hardworking. You have to work hard to, to be paid under the table and survive. And to, and to thrive in this. So people are actually working hard. Most people are coming for that. Uh, they're coming to work. Um, and then a lot of them are sending money back home. From what I've read, I've read research more so than my personal interactions. I have interacted with people, um, but a lot of people are coming for jobs. Um, some people are coming for family, like they have children or some type of big support. Some of their families legal, some are illegal. That's actually a lot more common than people think. Um, so I would, say that, I would say that a lot of people are coming for work and a lot of them are not coming because like, there's a lot of people who are not coming because of political violence. Like, I would not say that that's most of the people even. I will say that a lot of people are coming because there's extreme poverty. Um, I would say that that's probably the number one, in my opinion. Again, I don't have a survey, but I think that that would be the case um, for my heard. But there is a strong amount of people coming from polit- for political reasons, especially from Central America, where it's super dangerous. There are a lot of gangs. I mean, it's like Wild West. I mean, we can't even imagine. And that's why I invite Catholics who really want to authentically get to the truth to learn as much about that country where people are coming from as they can, right? If you really wanna get to the truth, right? You can't just listen to domestic political language. You have to listen to what is actually, what is this place like? Why are people, why would you walk hundreds of miles with your child on your back to to get denied after weeks and months of walking, right? You need to learn about what these countries are like and it will disturb you. Like, let me just say that some of them will disturb you.
0: Speaking of disturbing places, um, East St. Louis. I heard a lot about it living in Ohio, right? But when we moved here um, to the real Midwest, um, East St. Louis is a really, a really interesting place. You know, my, I, I was really impressed when we came here, my fraternity Omega Psi Phi. We have this youth program there, does a lot of good things. And so and there was this shelter, women's shelter that we help out. In In Illinois, it is the poorest city as far as Wealth and land values yep. and yep. unemployment its just one of the poorest. It, it, would, it would fit. East St. Louis would fit into it would probably be a little bit better than some towns in Mississippi. But it's just it's a, it's a poor it's a, a poor area. Um, And you could tell if you're just driving around like these houses used to be really nice. Right. So I don't I don't know a lot of the history, but you work as a mission alignment coordinator for the cabin urban programs. You do a lot of work down there. In, in East St. Louis, so talk about talk about what you're you're doing there.
1: Yeah, so uh, the work I do is you know we actually have a women's shelter called Holy Angel Shelter. Uh, it's a 18 bed I believe uh, women and children shelter. We have a food pantry. I oversee the food pantry. We do homeless prevention, so we prevent people from being homeless. I oversee that as well. Um, we do we pay utilities, rent. We do we work with St. Vincent de Paul a lot. We have a lot of people who work between both of us. Um, we have a we actually have five uh childcare sites within public housing. So they literally are in public housing where kids literally come. We have two nuns that work there. One of the nuns started it. Um again, multi-million dollar uh situation we have where we're taking care of kids uh right after school and during the summers. Um so we're in public housing, so we're right there in the midst of it. So that's the kind of stuff we do. Um we also help to move people out of public housing into uh, market rate housing. If they're already paying market rate rent. So we pay their first and last security deposit. We also give them uh, talk about how to read a lease. We talk about how to deal, be a good neighbor. Um, we talk about um, tenants rights. We talk about kind of this, everything that you need to know to be a good tenant and to survive in a market rate, uh, a market rate place. So that's kind of a little bit of stuff we do. We do a lot. We have a lot of programs, but that's some of the stuff that we do there. in East And when,
0: in back in the 19, late 1960s, um, my everyone's reporting, my everyone's, um, opinion of him. Derek Bell was a really smart guy, um, uh, professor at Ivy League University, but he wanted to look at the law to sort of explain why there are disparities with black Americans in, in the United States right now. Decades later, this has morphed into what a lot of people call, you know, critical race theory. And it's, a lot of it is not even close to what Derek Bell was talking about. But Derek Bell, my, my problem with him was that he took one data set, the law, Legal president in you know in law enforcement of law to try to explain um, the, the problems in the, in the black community, which 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 really doesn't make it a critical race theory. It makes it a critical race hypothesis. Because nowhere do you take just one data set to try to explain something. That's not a theory. Theory takes many data sets. But but nevertheless, um, what impresses me about your work is the fact that. You you're 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 addressing the home right, the the family and people's immediate issues and and helping them there, and you're not you're not you're not pointing to someone else being the problem right, and you're helping people developing themselves and teaching people things and realizing that they can do something to change their life right, and you're not you're not using something else as an excuse right.
1: Well, I want to I want to open up a couple of things there because there's a lot that's said in the in those phrases and or in that kind of those sentences. I'll say this: my job is as a somebody who works for a church-based charity is a non-ideological position. I don't have any. I, I'm there to serve uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, actually. Um, and so, like, that's I don't I don't come with any type of theory or political. I mean, in terms of I'm not working from any ideological motive. That's not why I'm there. I'm there for the human person. Uh, and they tend that's to a, That's
0: that's, that's, a, that's a beautiful thing. That's, I, I appreciate that.
1: But I'll say this, um, like, you know, from the gospel perspective, looking at East St. Louis, it's not sufficient from a Catholic perspective to look at East St. Louis and boil everything down only to individual behavior. Why do I say that? Why do I say that? Am I saying that individual behavior is not important? No, I'm not. What I'm saying is that our church, if you read the catechism, you can go to the social justice I already quoted earlier. You go to the end of that part on social justice and the catechism, it talks about how social and economic inequalities, uh, they actually militate against the human person. And they actually invite and demand action, which is why if you read the social encyclicals all the way from the late 1800s, it decries social inequity. In those terms, the term inequity, if you go into the uh, compendium of the social doctrine of the church, published under the papacy of St. John Paul II, um, you'll find this talked about. And why is it, why, why is the term equity important here? Because the human person has the same essential value and dignity and worth. Everyone's not the same, meaning somebody is gifted, some people are not gifted in that area. So there's natural inequalities. But inequity in a social sense, social and economic inequities can get to the point where they can be sinful by how deep and blatant they are. Take East St. Louis. It is sinful for East St. Louis to be in that situation. It is sinful, and not just individually sinful on the part of people who are there, and maybe develop
0: developed that a little bit more. I mean, how's so, it? How's it sinful?
1: It's sinful for our country. It is a. It is a by sin. It misses the mark of God's will for us as a people to tolerate inequity of that kind. You've lived in everyone won't be familiar with Southern Illinois. But East St. Louis is not just poor for Southern Illinois, which is already one of the poorest dioceses in the country. It is actually poor for the whole country. It's one of the, it's one of the poorest cities in the whole country. Yeah. And the violence per capita ranks as bad as cities in Venezuela. Even worse, uh, if you go through a whole list uh, of the murder rate, homicide rate. It's a very small population. So it's per capita. That's not the amount of people, but it's based on the uh, the population. Yeah, That's problematic, right? The same reason why it's sinful From our whole nation's perspective, not just the community, but our whole nation should feel that it's a sin that we have gun violence as severe as it is in African-American communities, which is another fact. And you can say, oh, it's their fault. It's the people in the African-American community fault. They have to change their behavior. We have to, we have, as Catholics, we understand that we have a calling and a vocation to make the world align with God's will, not in an ideological way, meaning we're not saying that there's an ideology that will bring about the kingdom of God on earth. We're saying the kingdom of God already amongst us. And this is why you have saints who literally go out of their way to aid people in charity who are not their physical family, brothers and sisters, in the most close-knit sense. But they go out of their way. And some of those are the people who, are the, who have the deepest, they witness the deepest sanctity to our modern world. Why? Because they image the light of Christ and the will of God for our world and challenge how we built our system and how our system exists. So in a sense... Yes, I do help people to understand how they can change their behavior because behavior change is necessary. Often you can find in yourself one of the problems that you need to solve, right? Every person, but particularly we challenge people to look and see their whole case as it were. That does not give people, that does not take people off the hook um, for their own fellow countrymen uh, to allow things to go on and say, well, that's their community over there. That's that state over there. That's not me. That's someone else. This is not a Catholic vision of the world. We we live in, in, in community, and so we have to recognize that as well. So there's room for critique um, of our social and economic circumstance from a Catholic perspective, not ideological, but from a Catholic perspective and a human dignity perspective.
0: Mm-hmm. Would you agree that throughout history, um, we found that, you know, the Catholic Church has always been right on, right on with this one, that uh, – there's probably three factors to building a healthy society. You know, one is the family, the, the mother and the father and the child. Um, two, um, it would be good education. Right, people are better when they're not stupid. Right, and and the third thing would be morals and values. Right, the, the, especially Christian morals. Right, like the church. The role of the church in society. You've been to South Central America. You know how the communities are built. Beautiful. Oftentimes, there's a church at the center, and the community was built around it. Right. This is, this is just, you know, something we just intrinsically seem to know. Um, but, and another thing, you know, pointing to the, the, the loss of so just morals and values in some communities. Back in, I think it was 1962 we saw that thing is due to some sort of court ruling that um, the Ten Commandments and religious education and prayer was taken out of school. Was it a coincidence, do you think, that 10 years later, we saw that the prison population exploded? So the same kids who no longer have prayer in school and um, Ten Commandments and things like that, that population of people filled up our prisons in the early 70s. Is that is any correlation
1: to that? Well, I would not. So I'm not going to say that there's a correlation between that court case or those decisions and then people going to prison. But I, will, I will say this, that I agree with what you said about morals and values being critical and being really important. The family is being important. I will point people to, if you want to read a scholar on this, who has many books that are actually very pertinent to this question, particularly also looking at Um, a critique of critical race theory that is still relatively progressive. I mean, I think this person is still relatively progressive. His name is William Julius Wilson. He was a Harvard sociologist. Uh, He may still be alive, actually. He wrote a book called The Truly Disadvantaged, which talks about, it critiques the notion that racism is the sole reason why there are social social and economic inequities within the African-American community, while at the same time recognizing that there are structural problems. And why I bring him out as as somebody to read and for somebody to look into uh, particularly his book the truly disadvantaged that does have old data He has newer books, but the argument in that I think is valuable for folks if they're interested in, in reading that and it does Speak to this some of this time period that you're referring to um and, you know the 80s it talks about also in the in the se- late 70s 80s And I think it's written with data including the 90s like the maybe like mid 90s, but that, it doesn't go past 2000s I don't believe with are new books. But anyways, is because when people talk about critical race theory, I often ask them to define what their critique is. Is their critique of critical race theory the critique um, that I have? That, so, for example, um, some scholars would say that, you talk about Derrick Bell, Derrick Bell talks about race racism as permanent, as a permanent, uh, something that exists permanently within the structure of American society. I critique that. And,
0: and by, the, by the way, in, in like that's one of those things where Derrick, these modern people would depart from Derrick, because modern critical race theorists, they would, they would, their goal is to end racism. So there's some argument between these modern people and Derek. But yeah, go ahead.
1: I'll say even even what he said. He actually said that African Americans should continue to strive to uh, to destroy racism, but he says that they should do it for their own benefit, as like a way of self to to like kind of grow morally in a way. Uh very interesting uh, person, by the way. I'm not a, a scholar an expert on, on Derek Bell, but he has I have read him and I've read others as well, and he, they're interesting. But I'll say um, I disagree with some elements, Uh, but to throw everything out, I think, is not proper. So, for example, what are some things of value from critical race theory? Uh, The idea of race as a social construct. This is very important because this is actually uh, very true and something that is not. It seems like it'd be evident. Um, but it's actually not. And so when you have, you kind of have these things, built up a, so why do I say, what do I mean by race is a social construct? That may sound like really sociological leftist language. So as you're listening, what I mean by race is a social construct. That means that race is not a static part. It's not biological. Right. So where I mean yeah. by that race is something that's defined by your location It's defined by your social context. I can be here and people look, like, Oh, that's an African-American. I can go to Brazil. And they have a whole another racial classification system that doesn't have African American as a as an option, and I wouldn't be black in the Brazilian context. Uh, so, what I, So it, it basically says that there's no eternal right white and black that are always at odds fighting each other for all time. Like that's not. Yeah. Some people have that in a mythological way. That's that's totally false, and they have found that in that it talks about this how race has been created by the law, and this is actually where where race critical race theory is very important and useful as a tool. To say, where in the law, in the cases of the United States, has race been decided as a race? So, for example, one case in which a man from the Caucasian region of Asia applied to be white. Because he said, I'm from Caucasia. I'm from, you say the Caucasians, I'm from there. And he applied and they said, no, actually, you don't actually look white, so you're not white. That was the actual, that's a court case in in real court of the United States. And they. that's another case cases that's that brought out in the scholarship. Okay, that's wild. We were just there. and what he actually said—they they actually said in the court case, whiteness is what the common man looks like, like thinks it is by looking at you. Like that's the whole definition they gave. When you look at somebody, you can just tell. That's literally what the court said. The court, okay. Obviously, also when court cases said, you know, a white person and a black person can't marry each other. That's illegal. That's a crime. And they and they have held that in court multiple times. They have held the fact that you can have people housed in different places just based on the color of their skin. That's, those are real laws. So Critical race theory brings out the fact that this had a, this scarred our nation. But where I disagree with critical race theory, and, and also, and that's why I say I like to have a balanced view. There's things I agree with that some scholars have said. There's things I disagree with. And that's how we have to approach it. Um, I disagree that racism is at the heart of the American project. Racism has been present from the beginning of the American project. It has been there. But it's not the core. And that's why I think you have uh, African-American thinkers and scholars like Frederick Douglass, uh, like Martin Luther King Jr. and others, they're not anomalies; they're the most famous who literally call upon the values in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence as things that we should champion and herald as African Americans. I think about the poet <coughs> who's a beautiful poet who sings. She actually was like a kind of a British patriot, but she was also a slave and talks about the values of uh, of like kind of the patriotism and things of the same. So, I want to challenge listeners to not get caught up in the political language. Don't get caught up in the critical race theory. Like you know, fight as Catholics, we have to be able to discern the truth and we have to be able to take the good and leave the bad, right? You should you should care about what your kids are being taught. You should care. You should be active in your school board meetings. You should care about policy and education, but do not fall into extremism because often the truth is not as obscured, right, by talking heads.
0: Yeah, and I, and I agree with you. The, the, the race is a social construct. <clears throat> okay, we agree there. And also... Where they're at as far as um, the preferential option for the poor. The critical race theory must also say that you know. Okay, those are two things Catholics can go along with. So yeah, I I, I appreciate that. Um, I I would also add to the book you added, um, "Race and Culture" by Thomas Sowell. Right. I think in that book he takes more than just one data set. The law. Um, he takes economics, he takes all, a whole bunch of things, and he deals with race. Isaiah as Wells as is a, as a social construct very uniquely. So, um, so yeah. So what would you um lost the question I was about to ask you? Let me get to one of my audience questions while we let's spend about maybe just five more minutes and then we can head out. But let me get to my audience while I um
1: Am I getting hate messages? <laughs> uh, I can't see it, so I can't see what it was. What's happening in the messages right now? But I'm sure it's, it's entertaining.
0: Uh, <laughs> no, everything's pretty good. I think some people disagree with you, but
1: <laughs> some some subtle, I'm disagreeable with
0: <laughs> um, Robert Lucas says, "What what about?" different races having different disease tendencies and reactions to drugs. So he's talking about, okay, if race is just a social construct, you know, uh, social structure, why do black people get sick as hell, right?
1: Well, <laughs> I want to say this. I I don't have the medical answer to that, but I'll say this, that when I say race is a social construct, I don't mean that there's no such thing as hereditary biology. Um, obviously, you know, when people, like, so for example, um, all like, a lot of the people who were enslaved from uh, in the United States were taken from a certain area of Africa. There were different groups of tribes, so they came from a certain geographical region. Um, and if people have lived in a certain certain region or from the same uh, gene line for a long period of time, they will pass down certain uh, traits. So th- that's not to destroy biological heredity, which is a, which is something that happens in families. It happens on the on the you know from the father to the son. It happens from the grandfathers the grandson like so it can happen over a long period of time as well that's genetics right and, and so that's a fact um but the idea of a certain race as like for example having these sociological characteristics uh what do i mean by that um how can i break this down in a simple way um like so for example uh the idea of what what comes by being black and what constitutes somebody being white we're not talking about somebody's biological genetic uh, you know, their genes and they, they do they have sickle cell? Okay, well, then they're black. Like, that's not obviously what we're doing. We're just looking at mm-hmm. them and we're making assumptions. And then based on their appearance, we also assume a, a set of behaviors and actions as well as a cultural narrative and a variety of other things. But what race can mean for a group or for a nation can change over time. So what what this what this appearance right. means, so for example, when you say, like, oh, somebody's white, what does white mean? What do you mean by that? you're referring to somebody from, of European-American heritage in general. So you're referring, when you say white, you're referring to a whole history and line of thought connected to a European-American heritage, more particularly in the United States, an Anglo-American heritage. So somebody from also the Anglophone countries or like Britain or, you know, with that common law tradition, you're assuming a bunch of things along with that. And what I'm saying by race a social construct is that what those set of kind of uh, uh, thoughts that come along with that, what those set of ideas are that come along with that can change over time cultural narratives can shift and change and what race means in a certain society is based on a broader cultural narrative that does shift and change so it's not to discount biology as existing biology exists but what you're being black or being white is not tied to your biology right that's not right. what somebody's meaning when they're saying you're black and white they're talking about how you appear and they're also talking about what they're assuming in terms of behavior which is why somebody can say you're acting black even if they don't look black it's like you're acting black right you're acting white what does that even mean if, if you're Race is a biology. Then it wouldn't be. There's no such thing as acting a biology, yeah. right? It's obviously yeah. referring to some other things with
0: that. Yeah. So race is a social construct. It's not dealing with biological mutations or mutations in DNA or anything like that. Yeah, exactly. Also, it's not dealing with what, what I think Thomas Sowell found in race and culture. It's not dealing with the fact that uh, throughout history um, uh, we've we've seen Jews um, be. Um, in multiple countries, in charge of garment industries, right? They, that, that's just been something they've done. So it is racism, is, so we, we see some things are just cultural as well. We've seen that um, Germans were always good at making pianos. So there's some things that, that just belongs to a, a culture, yet that's not necessarily, that's not biological, right? <laughs> there, there are I mean, other obviously things. Obviously, making pianos is not <laughs> Right. Right. Oh, and so, but when, but there was a point in time when we looked at Germans and said, so, oh, that's their, that's their race. Right. That's we associated what they did with what their race. Right. I understand the point. And so, yeah. So hip hop. Right. You say, oh, that's that's what black people do. Right. When I was in the Philippines, I was walking around me and my wife and some kids are playing basketball and they just assumed that I was really good at it. Right. And so that, <laughs> but exactly, that's, yeah. that's, that's right. not necessarily what it means. To be black and and so yeah. that's that's my main departure my main criticism of the, of the critical race theory is that it, it 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 emphasizes even though it says that race is just a social construct it seems to emphasize race a whole lot as the reason for everything that's true and so and so that, that that's that's where my huge
1: concern with it it's a valid critique and i think uh, that's a valid criti- and other people people from all ideological backgrounds have critiqued that Marxist actually even though it's ironic because a lot of Marx a lot of, a lot of uh, conservatives would align critical race theory with Marxism but there's actually they're actually not uh, aligned uh, in many ways because Marxist Mar- a classical Marxist has an economic determinative they believe that economics moves the society. they actually think that race is not important compared to like if you're a worker or a capitalist. Like those to them, those are like the main things. Race is actually not as important to in classical Marxism. And so there's a lot of critiques both oh. from the left and the right of their racialized, uh, you can call it identity politics of kind of this idea of like, yeah, your race is the most important thing about you as a person. Um, definitely critiquable from many, many perspectives. And so I would just say this: I would invite people to critique, to you know, challenge, but be honest, right? In the sense of look for also things that you can agree with and things you can disagree with. As yeah. Catholics, we're called to discern, right? Uh, in the Ignatian sense, we're called to discern the spirits. There's some things that will not be of God in the world, we know that. And there's certain things that we can draw from that even still, right? Many things we've drawn from Marxism over time, despite saying that Marxism is is not correct, it's changed our society and changed the way we view many social problems. And even the, even the rights in the United States and in Europe has definitely been Affected by a Marxist critique in ways that now seem completely natural think about uh, Donald Trump's and talking about the working class uh, Kind of that whole perspective. That's very Marxist language. Extremely Marxist language. That is not you would never have heard that uh, (laughs) Old uh, old conservatism, you know prior to the 1800s So like, you know, there's at least deny a positive way uh, as like the you know, the working man, you know, the everyday guy Yeah yeah, I think I think that
0: the, the, the Marx. I think we should, you know, people who want to critique critical race theory as being, you know, a, a, a seed of uh, a plant, uh, you know, some sort of Austrian Marxism. I think we should probably use more words. I think it's it's not the race thing. It's the the creating a victim class of people and, and saying that there's this big boogeyman. So so for Marxism would have been a, the proletariat and would have been the um the, the capitalists, all right. The, you know, you guys are you guys are being victimized and used by these people, therefore there must be some sort of change or revolution to overthrow that system. And so when we look at to critical race theory or we look at the Hebrew Israelites or some aspects of the uh, black liberation theology, we just see this okay, there's this seems to be a group of people that they want to make in the victim and another group they want to make the bad guy. And they want to tell these guys, well you need us to help you overthrow them. And so it's just a, it's sort of a really basic, generic sort of look at Marxism that doesn't go really deep. Um, and so it's pretty sophistic. but I think that's generally how people are saying, oh, that's, that's Marxism. So.
1: Yeah, and I'll say, you know, just to wrap that up, you know, people need to, I think one of the big things that conservatives have missed in this opportunity for this discussion has been willing to open up the dialogue that folks may have about the history and their experience in the United States. Um, I think as Americans, we should be able to sit with the fact that many people in the United States, right? You know, you're a bit older than me, but I think about my mom and the stories that she even told me about driving around in Southern Illinois as a young girl. And you couldn't go to many parts that now many African-Americans live in uh, because you could be harmed there. And there was something that was actually told to her. And then she, you know, growing up, she also passed signs, right, in Southern Illinois, where I live now, or where I lived recently and now I live in St. Louis partially, but <laughs> where I live yeah. recently um, where there were signs on pools that says, you know, no, uh, no black people alive. And that, she grew up with that, right? And that was in Southern Illinois, right? Um, yeah. So you have to understand that there's people who can have feelings of, that they have experienced oppression. And there's also objective facts to support that claim. I think that's different than, I think, but I think with that at the same time, right? There's one to, You You have to be able to dialogue and be able to talk. So many conservatives will say, okay, yeah, that was the past, though. We're in the future now. You just stop thinking about the past. Okay. I like how Pope Francis dealt with this in the, the document uh, for T. You can't force social forgiveness. You cannot tell a group of people to forgive this other group if they've actually experienced a real grievance. You cannot say, you need to forgive now. Um, rather, it should be a stance of dialogue, right? So it should be a stance of, of conservatives being willing to say, like, look, that was all very bad, right? And even if people bring it up, even if African Americans bring it up again and again, you should be like, you know what? I'm your brother and sister in being an American. That was not my values. That was not my, my uh that's not American values. I'm so glad we changed that, right? You can just come come from that. Don't come from the stance of why are you complaining? You should be grateful. Like, you know, like there's a there's a way of approaching, it's just a very human I mean value.
0: that's that's how, I mean that's, that's your I mean, you're a good point there, because that's how I, I do talk to my 13, my 12 year old daughter. I mean, because I think she's very privileged. I think she is. I mean, I think she, she doesn't realize how privileged she is. And so sometimes I tell them even when she's complaining about how miserable her life is, you know, I remind her, you have it great. You know, and so yeah, you're right. I, I, and so when, she, when I tell her that, she's just telling me the other day, she's like, well, you tell me how great my life is and everything I have. But that doesn't change the way I feel. So, yeah, I, I, I get that. I, I get that. But but you know, and, and I would say with the the personal story, the critical race theory believes that people just have a people have a personal story. We should. There it is. To. Yeah, there it I is. I'm fine with listening to people's personal stories, but I'm not going to accept the fact that you're 400 years old, right? I, I'm not going. If you want to incorporate the story of Kunta Kinte into your own life, you want to incorporate the story of even Rodney King into your own life. I don't have to hear that. That was Rodney King's story. That was their story 400 years ago. There may be some issues that related to that, but when I hear the narrative, like uh, we've been this, we've been, they've done this, that that's not your story. I want to hear your story. What is, how, how have you been personally affected by racism? Um, And and, and so I'm okay with history, but I, I, I just refuse to accept this narrative of this, this incorporation of 400 years of blacks in America or this community assignment that you're not, you're not Trayvon Martin. That's not you. He had a horrible story, a horrible ending. That's not your story, personally. It may, it may be something like it, and that's what I want to hear. And so, I have a huge problem with people acting like they're four hundred years old.
1: I'll say the challenging, and you know, I I hear what you're saying. I think the challenge with that is like, as a people, or as you know, as a group, right? Whether it's a you know, even if it's a family, right? Let's look at a family, right? You have stories from your grandfather you pass on, you cherish that. That's a part of who you are. You know, you're not separate from your family in a radical fashion. And the church does teach in a cultural sense that this is the same thing with culture. That's why a lot of people critique the way that the church interacts with cultures, whether indigenous cultures. other. The reason being is because culture in some way expresses uh, a unique human. Like, uh, I think uh, I think it was St. John Paul II who in a document defined culture as the way in which uh, a group of people kind of their story actually with God in a broad way, right? This is like culture par, par excellence. And now, like you said, in many, if you go historically, many cultures had their own origin story, their own creation myths, their own, all these things. That was the meaning, the meaning of this group of people. Um, that's actually at the core of, of culture. Now that's changed with secularization, but you have to remember that's very recent, right? So before that, this was the case, right? Secularization has changed this, but it's still there for some degree. So for African-Americans, African-Americans have a cultural history. Now, there's many people within African-American culture with different narratives, but there is a broadly shared narrative based on historical facts, but also with mythology. And so what I mean by that, for example, if you listen to the sermons of uh, old black sermons in terms of like early 1900s and the mid to late 1900s, you hear a lot of talking about Moses, the Exodus, where we're talking about like, you know, there, there's a way of drawing parallels between the African-American story and the story of, of the slaves in Egypt. Why? Because it makes a lot of sense. I mean they're both slaves, right? Like so you can easily make an easy parallel there. Um, so like even why uh why um Harriet Tubman like had this kind of she thought herself as like a new Moses, right? It's like it's very interesting, but this is a part of African-American culture. Um, so I do believe that we have to be connected to our cultural history and our cultural story. Now, what does that mean that and again I want to hold these two thoughts? I definitely believe people should learn about their cultural history, should read scholars from their own cultural history as well as others. That's important. I think it's important for self-esteem. I think it's also important for just general wellness. But does that mean that at the same time you have to say that what ha- That there's been no, no change in society? I mean, obviously there's been much change even in the past 30 years, let alone the past 60 years and 70 years. And so I think there's a difference between saying we live in this cultural narrative that we've inherited a historical narrative that's important to us. And also that nothing has changed from the past. Like So these are not the same, right? Just like I would love, like I love learning about people's cultural heritage. When people are from Germany, um, like my wife's family, I was just talking to her dad. He was talking about his German heritage. And he was like, man, Germans like always think about, um, I don't know, like being, he he kind of said some negative things about German. I'm not going to repeat it here, but he says things like Germans are stubborn or something. I don't know. Remember. And yeah. people have these cultural narratives, right, that they hold on to and they talk about and they eat this certain type of food and they have this certain back, like, oh, you are from the city in Italy. Oh, I'm from the city. Oh, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's good. Now, the problem becomes when you're not able to then dialogue with how things have changed. You get stuck in nostalgia. That's dangerous. Nostalgia is dangerous, uh, but memory is good. Collective memory, is yeah, good. yeah,
0: yeah. I think, I think, I think that's that's the that's that's Catholicism because that's tradition. We especially exactly. through the sacraments, we pass down this tradition from one generation to the next. I think the Jews have even done that better than us with their Seder ritual, their Passover meal that Jesus himself participated in. You know, the the story begins. There's a story at the Seder. You know,
1: exactly,
0: yeah. um, My father was a wandering Ar Aramean, and the story goes on. But the, the distinction is, though, that they're not victimized by that. That's a story of triumph, a story of, 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 of self-esteem, you know, of making it through and trusting God. I just find that the community assignment, this narrative that we're still 400 years old, that, you know, like you said, nothing's changed. It just it, it debilitizes people um, and just makes them feel like victims sometimes. I heard it LeBron James said, we can't leave the house without getting killed. I, that's not my story. I, never, I don't even. I don't know anyone whose story that is. Maybe you do, because the work you, the work you do. But um, ah, it's it's
1: just it just rubs a victimhood to me. But David, I want to challenge that in the in this way. In this way, is that you know? So when you take certain statements and you t- take certain things, and st- especially recent in recent times, where people have really felt like, and you know, you probably know this very well. The African-American community does not hand on the authentic African-American tradition very well. Actually, one of the big problems is that a lot of folks feel unmoored from a history or people group or a sense of community self-esteem. And because if you go into the into, I think, the broad strokes of African-American narrative, it is actually exactly what you just said in terms of this, this, this triumph over adversity, this experience of suffering and then coming forth as a people who still has their dignity intact. I mean, again, I hate bringing up the civil rights movement because everyone does, but the civil rights movement was truly like amazing. I mean, it it truly is. I read often about it. I read the works of King. I read uh, many scholars uh, who talk about it. I'm reading a book right now called The Movement, which talks about all of African American history, but it talks about that period as well. It's in my, one of my mentors was a part of the civil rights movement. So why is this, why was it so beautiful? Because it was, first of all, it was a deeply Christian movement. A deeply personalist movement. I wrote an article on this. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. was influenced by personalism and this idea of the dignity and worth of the human person. He talks about this: the dignity and worth of the human personality. So it was actually something that's also very deeply compatible with natural law, Catholicism. Very beautiful, very powerful movement. Um, And this is actually part of that. Those narratives that resonated with so many people. Why did it resonate with so many African Americans? Why did it cause people to go out and march in mass and be actually beaten? They were willing to be beaten the narrative was a powerful narrative and that gave people strength to overcome suffering. That's the power of the narrative. Now you can have a, a deteriorating narrative that cuts mm-hmm. at people and that hurts people and makes people see that they don't have value and worth. And I think that some of the language, some of the language that some people use does play into that, right? That black, like it's, and I don't like the way, so sometimes people will talk about black bodies. Like they'll say people treat black bodies with disrespect from I don't like the way that this is, I'm talking about activist language, because I've been activist community. It, <laughs> and, and I don't like that because that language differentiates the, the personality, the human personality. We're body and soul, right, composite. And so, so for me, I, I don't, like, my main thing is I do, like you were just saying, I think that in the African-American tradition. There's a deep empowerment narrative. It's deep. It's, it's there. It's consistent. You can read many African American writers all the way back from slave times, and invite people on this. If you really want to learn about African American culture, and you have critiques of some things you've seen from African American people like Al Sharpton or somebody like that, read read uh, read Sojourner Truth. Read Frederick Doug like read uh, W E B. Read Booker T. Washington. Read actually the sermons of Martin Luther King. Go listen. If you have Spotify, go listen to the sermons of King. King was a genius. He guys, his, his PhD at age 25. <laughs> um, Dr. Martin King Jr. could write, right? He could speak. <laughs> like that's how he got to that point so young. And so these are amazing people. This is the tradition, right? So make sure that also we're talking about social construction of race. Don't construct African Americans to be, right? Alice Sharpton and right, like you know the Patricia Williams from Black Lives Matter. Don't that that's not that's not all of Black culture and history and time and, and people. Like you know what I'm saying. Don't think, you know, it's uh, even Thomas Sowell, right? He's you a great writer and and economist. Don't make, even him, right? There's so many people. There's not just one person. So don't get caught up in that narrative. Just like you wouldn't want people to say, all white people are this, or all European Americans, all German. People are different. Every person is different. Culture has people that have written and talked in that culture and taught and said Mm -hmm. powerful things in that culture. You want to go to the strength, just like America. You would not like it if somebody said, let's go to the worst Americans and that's America, right? Just don't go to like don't go to the worst African American and say that's African-American culture right that's not you know does
0: like- the news media still do that if something happens do they still bring out the do they go find a person that's the the worst representative they could ever find to give a where's 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 my favorite one where's where's this at hold on because I think there's the media still does media still um do this, Lewis? He's clamming in your windows, he's snatching your people up,
1: trying to rape them. So y'all need to hide your kids, hide your wife, and hide your husband, because they are raping everybody out here. I mean, that's, I, I I didn't know what you were gonna bring up there. But I mean
0: But that's yeah, that's what but let me let me end the conversation on critical race theory and I guess our conversation tonight with this question, because I want you to just tie the whole thing back in to social justice. Um, uh, Here's the question. I guess it's true or false and you can build upon it. But in society today, in America today, the only person who you can legally discriminate against, everyone else has some sort of legal recourse. They can appeal to the law for discrimination or harm, except for these people, former felons. They can be discriminated against housing, jobs, shelter, anything. There you could do anything you want. You can't you don't even have to allow them to vote. People who have committed a felony, and been allowed out of prison, are the people who you can legally harm in this country.
1: Well, I, I mean I definitely believe that people who have committed a felony and have served their time are treated unjustly, um, in the sense that you're creating barriers for people to have a new life, right? People have served their time, people have whatever, and you shouldn't try to continue to create this perpetual punishment. Um, I definitely support, I've supported uh, campaigns on banning the box, for example, and some other campaigns that, that make sure that people who do come out of prison, my, my father was in prison. Um, I have many family members who have been in prison um, and even just community members. Um, I think the important thing is you want people to serve their time and to you know, learn from their experience and be able to live, right? It, as Catholics, we believe in reconciliation and forgiveness. And even with right reconciliation, there's a the temporal effects of sin, right? But we even believe that there's remedies for that, right? Indulgences. So can we have some indulgences for people who have committed felonies in the United States? Like, so I think that we we need to look at that. I think that's a justice issue. Uh, I wish there would have been something done in, in Trump's good old criminal justice bill. Uh, could have been some stuff there, but I do, be, I do believe that we're coming to a new place where we see that people can change over time. So that's a big thing. I think I hope all Catholics can agree on
0: that. Yeah, yeah. Lewis Damani Jones. Thanks for coming on to Talking Catholic. There's a lot here we can revisit. Hope we get a yeah. chance to talk again about this in the future. Stay on for a moment. I'm gonna make you disappear for a while. But um, thanks again for coming on to Talking Catholic. For everyone in the audience, I appreciate you guys, all your comments. All your questions and um, next um, tomorrow on the Guadalupe Radio Network show um, talking about separation of church and state. Is it not even a Catholic idea? Deacon um, Kevin um, Stevens will be on talking about what he's doing with the 1921 Tulsa riot. at his ministry association. The priests, helping um, to heal that. And then next week, next Tuesday for the live show, we're grading a liturgy again. And it's going to blow your mind away what happened. At this mass, But until then, and until next time, blessings and shalom to you and to yours. Hi everybody, thank you for watching. Subscribe here to get the latest from the show. Also be sure to check out the content you've missed. If you'd like to keep supporting my work, consider joining my team on Patreon where you'll be gifted great perks by books,
1: hoodies, and mugs. Thanks again.